Exodus chapter 21, beginning at verse 12. Anyone who strikes a person with a fatal blow is to be put to death. However, if it is not done intentionally, but God lets it happen, they are to flee to a place I will designate. But if anyone schemes and kills someone deliberately, that person is to be taken from my altar and put to death. Anyone who attacks their father or mother is to be put to death. Anyone who kidnaps someone is to be put to death. Whether the victim has been sold or is still in the kidnapper's possession. Anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. If people quarrel and one person hits another with a stone or with their fist and the victim does not die but is confined to bed, the one who struck the blow will not be held liable if the other can get up and walk around outside with a staff. However, the guilty party must pay the injured person for any loss of time and see that the victim is completely healed. Anyone who beats their male or female slave with a rod must be punished if the slave dies as a direct result. But they are not to be punished if the slave recovers after a day or two since the slave is their property. If people are fighting and hit a pregnant woman and she gives birth prematurely, but there is no serious injury, the offender must be fined whatever the woman's husband demands and the court allows. But if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, Wound for wound, bruise for bruise. An owner who hits a male or female slave in the eye and destroys it must let the slave go free to compensate for the eye. And an owner who knocks out the tooth of a male or female slave must let the slave go free to compensate for the tooth. If a bull gores a man or woman to death, the bull is to be stoned to death and its meat must not be eaten. But the owner of the bull will not be held responsible. If, however, the bull has had the habit of goring, and the owner has been warned but has not kept it penned up, and it kills a man or woman, the bull is to be stoned, and its owner also is to be put to death. However, If payment is demanded, the owner may redeem his life by the payment of whatever is demanded. This law also applies if the bull gores a son or daughter. If the bull gores a male or female slave, the owner must pay 30 shekels of silver to the master of the slave, and the bull is to be stoned to death. If anyone uncovers a pit or digs one and fails to cover it, and an ox or donkey falls into it, The one who opened the pit must pay the owner for the loss and take the dead animal in exchange. If anyone's bull injures someone else's bull and it dies, the two parties are to sell the live one, divide both the money and the dead animal equally. However, if it was known that the bull had the habit of goring, yet the owner did not keep it penned up, the owner must pay animal for animal, And take the dead animal in 
exchange. Exodus 21, we're going to look at verses 12 to 36. And as we begin to look at these passages, it's important to recognize that that part of being human is a desire that justice would be done. It's part of how, how God has made us, and that's part of what we're seeing reflected here in Exodus 21. We see that desire for justice in, for example, the popularity of daytime television, where you have uh, the show like Judge Judy, of which I confess I'm not a fan. But the principle of that show is that people bring difficult situations to Judge Judy to ask her to help to find a just and fair outcome. And one of the reasons why that show is popular uh, is because everyone has an opinion about what should happen, and we all like it when we're not the judge, but we're allowed to pass an opinion. But of course... Justice matters hugely in our world, doesn't it? When we think about, for example, the loss of human life and the effect uh, on others when life is affected. It's a question we're all asking. It's a question that Tim was praying for us about as we think about what's going on in Israel right now, as we think about the war in Ukraine, as we think about the plight of civilians living in Gaza and other areas in Israel also. What does justice look like? Well, as Tim explained, we've spent a number of weeks working through the Ten Commandments. We have uh, looked through those in detail. And what we saw in looking at those is that they are God's moral law. That God's moral law, they're enduring for all people and for all time. And they, they stand before, they stand afterwards, they, they keep going in that sense. But as we come to Exodus 21 and onwards, we're stepping into what Tim Helfer described as the civil law. Now, the civil law is the application of the moral law to the life of God's people in Israel on a day-to-day basis. So it's different to the moral law, uh, but there are similarities. But it it covers a huge range of areas. And in our section, the passage we're going to look at, it looks at what we should do when human life is harmed or human life is affected. Now, Now, that can feel very, very distant in some of the details As we saw last week, as James took us through the passage, we're thankful that slavery has been abolished. I don't know of anyone in the church who owns bulls, or of anyone who has a donkey, I think. But uh, we all own cars and property, and we have responsibility for how we care for those things. And my aim as we work through these verses is to see how God's word is incredibly relevant to our lives today. Because God's word teaches us here about justice. What does justice look like when human life is affected? So, how are we going to see the relevance of this? Well, let's just think about where we are. We're in Exodus 21 to 23, which is a section of the civil law. And we saw that contrast with the moral law in the Ten Commandments. And one way that we saw of thinking about this civil law, as James explained it last week, is a civil law is the practical application in the life of Israel of the moral law. It's more like this case law for the moral law of God. And it means that it's not entirely exhaustive, it's illustrative. These civil laws do not directly apply to us as Christians and as God's people today. We're not required to keep them in the same way as we are required to keep the Ten Commandments. But... They are an application of the moral law to life. 
And so in that way, they're helpful because we can see the principles God gives us from the moral law, applying them into the life of the Israelites. And the way we think about this is we talk about something called general equity. And general equity means we don't look at the specific detail, but we look at the principle that's going on behind it. And then we apply that principle to our lives together in this world. So how does that work out? Well, as we said already, um, whilst in the ancient Near East, nearly everyone owned cattle, today, very few of us own cattle. But many of us have property that has the potential to harm others. So as we saw the law as it related to what happened if some of your property harmed another person's property or another person, we can draw the principle of general equity for our responsibility towards our possessions. So that's how we're going to try and look at this. But before we dive into the detail, I just want us to see two preparatory things. First of all, our approach as we come to God's word really matters. One of the things James said so helpfully last week was to say that whilst we might struggle with some of the fairness of some of these laws as we try to understand them, the attitude of our hearts as we come to these verses should not be there's something wrong with God's word. It rather should be, Lord, help me to understand your word more fully that I might receive it as your scriptures. So the problem is in our understanding not in God's word. And if you have questions about some of the issues going on here around slavery, I commend you James's sermon last Sunday where he picked up uh, some of those. But the second thing I want us to think about, so we thought about our attitude toward this passage. The second thing that's so important as we come to this passage is we see just how good it is, what a good thing it shows us about our lives. And it's this, that God cares about every part of our lives. God cares about every part of our lives. The Christian faith is not just about Sundays. It's not just something for after work. It's something for 12 a.m. on Sunday through to 12 p.m. on Saturday. It is for all of life because Jesus Christ is Lord of everything. There is not one square millimeter of the universe. There is not one millisecond of your existence over which Jesus Christ is not Lord and God, and therefore we submit it to him. So as we come to this passage, we see that Christ is Lord of all. His rule stretches to everything. And that's really important to say because we can get confused and think that Christianity is just about our our faith and maybe our beliefs But it's not, perhaps, about what happens Monday through to Saturday. But that's not what this passage shows us, friends. It shows us it's about everything. Now, God's word doesn't address every subject, as we needed to address uh, in the church this week. It doesn't show you how to unblock a toilet. But it does teach you the principles for how to run a plumbing business. And the more we have the word of God in our hearts, and the more the principles we see are in our hearts as we live them out in our lives, the more we'll be helped to live for everything for the glory of God. So, with that exciting thought, as we jump into this passage, let's launch in. There are going to be three broad categories we're going to pick up in verses 12 to 36. There's a category of capital crimes, there's a category of personal injury, And there's a category of negligence. 
And as we look at these three laws, we're looking fairly briefly as we move through, we've lost a bit of time already, we're going to see that two principles are being applied. Remember, we're looking for the principles of general equity here in these civil laws. And the two big principles are going to be, first of all, human life is valuable. Second of all, we have personal responsibility. Those are the two big things as we work through. And we see, first of all, that God shows that human life is precious in the specifics of these laws. And we're going to just work through there very briefly um, some of the laws. Now, you may have a question about a particular law. Um, I, I won't have time to address every question. I'll try to pick out some of the main ones as we come to them. Do come and speak to me afterwards. If you're wondering, oh, what about this, Matthew? How should we think about this? Happy to discuss the detail. But what we see as we look at the capital crimes in the first category, which is verses 12 to 17... We see that some actions are so serious, a death penalty is warranted in some cases. So the repeated phrase three times in verses 12 to 17 is that someone should be put to death. Now what's going on here? We're seeing the preciousness of life. And we're seeing that human life is precious in these three situations. So in verses uh, 12 Uh, 13 and 14, the issue of murder is picked up. In verse 12, we read that to take the life of another with intent to kill is murder. And in verses 12 and 14, it says that death should follow that. But to take the life of another, verse 13, when you didn't have the intent to kill, well, murder doesn't follow. And and God says that there's provision that someone who does that would flee to what's called a city of refuge where they would not be able to leave until the death of a high priest, but they would, not be, um, they would not face a death penalty in the same way. So what's being worked out here? Well, it's an application of the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. The second category of situation is in verses 15 and 16, where family life is addressed. And we need to understand what's being spoken of here. So in verse 15, it says, anyone who attacks their father or mother, is to be put to death. Now, the word attack here is not just um, uh, some kind of physical action towards your parents. It's a strike with the intent to kill, the strike with the possibility to take away life. And we see something similar in verse 17, where it says, anyone who curses their father and mother is to be put to death. And again, the word here for curse is not just an angry word spoken under our breath. It is a deliberate and public rejection of our parents. And the principle being worked out here is that parents should be protected and honoured. And here we're having an application of the fifth commandment, family life. And the place of the family, it's a key building block to life. Then the third situation is in verse 16, and it's the issue of slavery. And there we read, we are not to take life or to sell, we're not to steal another life or to sell another life into slavery. And we saw last week that that verse alone, verse 16, should have been enough to have destroyed the slave trade, to stop the slave trade because it was wrong. So here we see in the issues of the sixth commandment and the eighth commandment that in some situations God says a capital offense has been committed. Second range of situations are in verses 18 through to 27. And there you have four scenarios where these two principles are being applied. The principles, human life is valuable, we have personal responsibility. And notice what's picked up. Situation one 
is in verses 18 and 19, where a fight happens and one individual is injured. And the person who causes the injury is responsible both for the loss of income to the person who is injured and also to pay for their medical costs. The principle here is a reminder that if we are violent, it will come with costs to us and others. The second situation uh, there in verses 20 and 21 is the excessive punishment of a slave. Now, notice the value of a life of a slave. Look at verse 20, where if a male or a female slave dies, then the owner of the slave is in a situation where they have taken life. But if the slave doesn't suffer personal injury, then we're back into a a personal, it doesn't suffer death, they suffer personal injury, we're back into the previous situation where the labor of the slave is to be, um, their their recompense is to be made. Now, you might wonder what's going on here in verse 21. Well, what's going on is a slave is someone in the ancient world whose life hasn't been sold, but their labor has been sold. And so here the case happens that their labor is restricted, but their labor is not their own. They've sold it to another And so this word, his property, is better understood as his money. Their labor belongs to somebody else. And no repayment is made because that has been affected. Third situation is that of injury to a pregnant woman and her child. That's in verses 20 to 25. And here you have a a, a fight between two people and a pregnant woman is harmed, not deliberately, but she is harmed. What happens here? Well, we looked at this as we looked at the sixth commandment. We saw that if there's no injury to the woman or her child, then there is still a fine. Why? Well, because uh, a pregnant woman is particularly vulnerable and should be protected. But if there is an injury to herself or to the child, well, then the principle of punishment follows. Now, note how clear it is here in verses 22 to 25 that a child is valued just the same as any other adult. Notice eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, serious injury to a child. And then the fourth situation, there in verses 26 and 27, is a permanent injury to a slave, where there may have been a harm to a slave. If there is no lasting injury, verse 21 applies. Um, But if there is a lasting injury, look what happens. They are set free The consequence of their action is that they are set free as compensation. Now, this is really striking. It's really striking because in the ancient Near East, people treated slaves as property rather than people. But what does the Bible say about individuals who have sold their labor? He says, no, they are humans. Their labor might have been sold to you for a time, but not their life. They have value personal injury. And then thirdly, the third category of situation, and we'll just pick this up briefly, is there in verses 28 through to 36, where we read that if an animal kills people, if they gore someone to death, if it's a first occasion, then the animal dies and the owner isn't responsible. But if it's happened before, then both the animal and the owner are both to be put to death because there's negligence in caring for property. 
The second situation uh, there in verses 34 and 35 relates to pits. Now, I don't know, who's dug a pit in their garden recently? No, we haven't. Yeah, okay. Um, But if you dig a hole in your land and you fail to cover it and someone else's animal lands on your land and falls into it, then what should you do? Well, here you have personal responsibility. You should have covered over the pits. But notice the balance here in the Scriptures also for proportional punishments because you get to keep the animal. Why? Well, the animal shouldn't have been straying away from their owner's property onto your land. And then the third one uh, is where two animals fight, one dies, and there is personal responsibility. There is a need to give compensation, but it's to be done in a fair way. So what God is doing there is he is governing life for his people in Israel. I have a particular question about a particular law. I have to talk about it afterwards. But he's governing his life for his people Israel, and he's doing that with these two principles. He's saying human life is valuable. That's being worked through the passage. And he's also saying we have personal responsibility for our actions. Now, what I want to do now is we've thought about how God recognizes the value of life. Now I'd like us to think about how we can apply those two principles that we're seeing in this passage to our lives in this world. Human life is valuable. We'll pick this up first. These laws show the great value of all human life. There are lots of different law codes in the ancient Near East, and you can go and read them. They're fascinating to read. One of the different law codes is called the Law Code of Hammurabi. Now, what's amazing about the Law Code of Hammurabi is that um, the legal system only applies punishments when you hurt or harm someone who is in a higher class to you. So, if you are a noble person, you are permitted in the Hammurabi law code to harm those below you, but you are not permitted to harm those above you. God's word does not work that way. Do you see that in this passage? What does God do? God says severe penalties come upon all death because all life has equal value. Notice, if you cause death or harm to men or women, to adults and children, to slave and free, all attract penalties, similar penalties. It's astonishing because in the ancient Near East, people's value was defined by their output economically and what they could do in society. And that is how some value life in our world, isn't it? We think about what can that person contribute. That is not how God thinks about human life. God says human life has value because it is made in the image of God's. And that means that all life has value, male and female, adult, child, whatever your circumstances, you have great value, God says, because you bear God's image. So let's just press that home to our hearts a bit, friends. What does that mean? Well, it means we should value the lives of others greatly. We spoke about that in the sixth commandment. About six weeks ago, we spoke about the evil of abortion, about euthanasia, about unlawful killing. All life has value. It also means, friends, and this is key, your life has value. Your life really matters People should not mistreat you. And if they do, 
you should seek help because your life has value. It also shows us that people matter more than property. It's very interesting. As the civil law picks up the different areas of the life of Israel, in chapter 21, you start with a law related to people. And notice that chapter 21 is all about the value of human life. Chapter 22 comes on to what? Property. Chapter 23 uh, talks about other laws. So the order of the laws shows us the value of human life. And not only that, whilst the death of an animal requires payment, the death of a person attracts the death penalty. This observation in Exodus 21 should also teach us that we should not choose the planet and animals over people because human life has great, great value. We care for the planet because we are stewards over God's creation. But we should not prioritize the animals or nature above people. And we need to see the way the scriptures are teaching us these things. But then the other big way in which this passage shows us the value of life is that in some cases and in some situations, the death penalty is permitted. Now, why do we say that? Well, is the death penalty just part of the civil law of Israel? No, it's not. Because if you know, if you look in the Bible, you find the death penalty is actually established back in Genesis. So if you have in your Bibles, keep your hands in Exodus 21, you turn to Genesis chapter 9, we find this is not just a part of Moses' law for the civil administration of Israel. But in Genesis chapter 9, verses 5 and 6, what does God say? God says, For your life, bud, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting for every animal, for each human being too. I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. And then verse 6, the foundation of the value of life. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God, God has made mankind. It's there in Genesis 9. And as we jump on to Romans chapter 12, we find that it continues into the New Testament. Because there in Romans, sorry, if you're going to Romans chapter 13, and in verse 4, what does God say? God says that the Lord gives the role of the state as his servant. Uh, Romans chapter 13 and verse 4, the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents for wrath, to bring punishment upon the wrongdoer. I think it's right to debate what crimes should attract the death penalty. But in this passage, and in Genesis 9 and in Romans 13, we're seeing clearly that premeditated murder falls in that category. Now, why is that? Well, it's because human beings bear the image of God. There are controls and protections in God's words. Deuteronomy speaks of having two witnesses. But here we're seeing the seriousness of taking the life of another image bearer. And so the law does not, God's word does not, tell us that to take life breaks the sixth commandment. The sixth commandment is about unlawful killing. But in this case, and in some others, it's permitted. 
Now, we need to remember that, friends, is what it teaches us about life. It teaches us the value of life. And we need to be so careful that as we see what's portrayed in the media, that we allow ourselves to be formed by the Word of God and not what we read and see in the media. God allows the state to take life in a just war and in the case of a death penalty. And even in, that is even in the midst of a fallen world of Genesis chapter 9, where there can be miscarriages of justice and unintended consequences. This is part of God's justice. Now, we all long for peace, don't we, in our world? But let's not forget that peace requires justice. And this can inform how we think and pray for situations around our world where we rightly pray and we long for peace, as Tim was praying, but then we also long for justice when evil is done and when murder is committed. So perhaps as we pray for what's going on in our world, we, we pray for the conversion of everyone who's affected and all those who have been involved. We pray for the protection of civilians, but we also rightly pray for justice when life has been taken. Don't let your thinking be shaped by the world or the media. Be shaped by God's word alone. Human life has value. Second big principle is that we have personal responsibility. And I remember a politician who once said, we're going to be tough on crime and tough on the causes of crime. Do you remember that? What his name was? Tony Blair, wasn't it? That was one of the big things that uh, Tony Blair said. And it was uh, part of how he presented himself in this kind of third way where responsibility was a bit vague. Because if you think about the question, fundamentally you have to choose. Either we are responsible for what we do or we're not. And this passage is clearly teaching the principle of human responsibility. So people might say, I did it because... Or I'm not responsible because. But God's word says our sinful nature, our background, our our environment, our circumstances might all bring challenges that make it more difficult for us not to sin. But the consistent message of this passage is that we are personally responsible. Why? Because we are moral beings made in the image of God. And that means we all have individual personal responsibility. Where do we see that? Well, we see it here in the passage in the provisions for personal injury. Why? If you hurt someone, you need to provide for their ongoing income, so you make recompense financially, and you need to provide for their medical needs. We see it here, this personal responsibility, in the provision for negligence if we don't look after our property. Now, now I don't know anyone who owns uh, cattle or bulls, but many of us own cars and property. When we get in our cars, we should not think, well, hang on, the brakes aren't great, but I'll wait till the MOT to get it sorted. That's not right. Why is it not right? You know there's a problem with your car. That is something over which you have responsibility. So just like the owner of the bull needed to restrain their bull and take action so it didn't hurt others, as an owner of a car, you're responsible to keep your car safe. 
I was convicted this week in thinking about what it means for our homes, that we should not be negligent when there are dangers to fix them. And Naomi's been talking to me about the trellis over the gate for weeks. And the way I think about the trellis, I think, well, I'll deal with it when it falls down on someone. Shouldn't do that. She's right to say, Matthew, you should fix the trellis before it falls and perhaps lock the gate for safety until it does. Ownership brings privileges. Ownership brings responsibilities. We see also in this passage that all human beings are moral beings, including children. Children have responsibility. It is striking here that a child can be put to death based on how they acted towards their parents. Now, we don't, I don't believe we apply that law in the same way today. But we do see the child is responsible before God for how they act. It's vital to see that. Because in our world, the actions and the worlds of children are often not their responsibility. Our world often makes the actions of children the fault of adults. But that's not helpful. We are responsible, moral human beings. But then finally, responsibility here is personal and not transferable to others. And there's a very specific example. I want to speak some time on this because we live in a world where what happens is someone does something wrong and then we make lots of other people guilty of that wrong. You see it all the time. We transfer sin and guilt from some to others. And the Bible says that's wrong. If you, and here's a specific example. Verse 31. Look at verse 31. What was going on there? It was about what happened when an animal harmed a man or a woman and they were put to death. But in verse 31, look what it says. It says, this law also applies if the bull gores a son or a daughter. So who's responsible if a bull goes out and damages another person? Who is? The owner of the bull. Now that's really striking because in the ancient Near East, what would happen would be that if my animal hurt one of your children, I would go out and hurt one of your children. Who is bearing the responsibility for my actions? My child, not me. What is this passage saying? This passage is saying responsibility is personal. The one who didn't look after their animal is responsible for the actions of their animal. And in our world, we live in a world where sin is transferred between generations at times, people speak of that, and between people at times. Such that for those who have the same gender or skin pigmentation or religious convictions or nationality, we say they are guilty of all of the sins of people who fall into their category. And this passage doesn't do that. God's word doesn't do that. So, let's be very specific. Here we're going to be very specific. All men are not responsible for the sins of some men. Sinful men are responsible for the sins of sinful men. And sinful women are responsible for the sins that they have committed. It's very important that we don't transfer it to groups. So please do not believe what the Barbie film teaches about this worldview, where it sets up men against women, this kind of hostility. That is not good. That is not helpful. It sets up this battle of the sexes, which is not harmless, and it shapes our thinking and our outlook. 
Also, friends, Christians today are not responsible for the sins of previous generations. Some may call for what they call reparations, which are payments made today to people based on the wrong that's been done, or even murder or personal injuries in the past. So that's said, for example, about the slave trade. But that can't be right when the people who live today were not alive when those things were done. We should not be transferring sin and guilt between groups. Do not take that yoke, friends. It is a burden you cannot be free from. You can rightly and should be called to repent of your own sins and to seek to make them right. But we are not responsible for the sins of others. Vital principle here in this passage. But... Then, if we bear the responsibility for our own actions, which is what this passage is teaching, then that should begin to unsettle us this morning slightly. I hope actually reading this passage, we see that principle is very, very troubling because it means that I am responsible for my wrongdoing and how it affects others. And even more than that, I am responsible for my wrongdoing in how it is an offence before the God of heaven. We live in a world that is obsessed with policing actions and thoughts of others because of how they affect other people. But we're all about the horizontal and we always forget the vertical. The vertical is always first. Sin is always an offence against the living God and it's before God before whom we have to give an account. So friends, this passage is driving home that truth that you and I are responsible. There was a a teacher who was uh, trying to teach her children this one time, and so what she did was she said, we're going to make a world out of Play-Doh in school in the morning. And each of the children had their table, they worked with their friends, they made their Play-Doh world, and they made it this beautiful world and put their people in it. In the afternoon, she said, right, what we're going to do is we're going to make rules for the Play-Doh world. And they made the rules for the Play-Doh world, and they wrote them down on paper, and they did some writing, and they did it really well. And at the end of the day, the teacher said to to the whole class, she said this, what would you do if the people who you had made, living in the world you had created, broke the good rules you had given? And one girl hand shot up in the air and she said, Miss, I'd squash them. We all laugh. But wasn't that girl onto something really powerful? God has made you. You have life today because the God of heaven has given you life. He's put you in this world. This great world he's given for your good. He's given you his good laws that free you to live a life to his glory. What have we done? We've rejected this good God. We've broken his good laws. So what do we deserve? That's personal responsibility, friends. That's justice working out. What's our answer to that great question? Well, the answer is this, friends, and this is how we close. The God of heaven sent Jesus Christ into this world to pay for the sins of those who would trust in him. The God of heaven, the God who made us, 
the God who created us, the God who gave us good laws, sent Jesus Christ that we may not pay the penalty, but that we might go free. Now, we have spoken about transferring of sins this morning, and we've said that's not biblical. It's not. But there is one great transfer that God declares is true for all who believe. What is it? My sin goes to Jesus. He bears it. So as he dies on the cross and as he suffers for his people, as he bears the wrath of God, as he pays for the sins of those who believe, what do we know? We know freedom. We know forgiveness. We know acceptance before the God of heaven. And if you're here today and you feel the guilt of your sin, that is what I want you to know. I want you to know that if you trust in Jesus Christ, forgiveness is there for you. The story told of a, an American tribe where um, someone was stealing the chickens. And every night, one or two chickens were disappearing from the tribe's supply of chickens. And they were going down and down and down. And the chief said, this can't continue, it's got to stop. So we got his guards together and said, we're going to have to watch the whole um, of our chickens tonight, watch around the whole of the property, the village, and we're going to watch it out. So they stayed up all night. Nothing happened until early hours in the morning. A shot went out. We've got the thief. The chief ran to the noise. The guards had pinned him down. Do you know what it was? The chief's son. He'd been stealing the chickens. Justice had to be done. You cannot have a world without justice where sin is dealt with. So the chief said, we gather the tribe. He strapped up his son there against a pole. Punishment, however many lashes from the whip. That was how they dealt with it, the penal system. Strapped him on, got ready to go. He said, wait a second. He ran, surrounded his son, and said, proceed with the punishment. Friends, the God of heaven, Jesus Christ, came into this world to bear the punishment for your sins if you trust in him. He came to take away the wrath. He came to take away the punishment that justice deserves so that we can go free. This is why the gospel is great news. This is why God's word is so true. And my question to you as I close is, is that, your, is that you today? Do you know this God? Do you know Jesus Christ? Do you know your sin's forgiven? Do you know acceptance with the God of heaven? Oh, that you might know it. You can know it in Jesus.